Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. When we last spoke about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we ended our discussion with the First Intifada, the Madrid Conference, the Oslo Accords, and then, of course, tragically, the assassination of Prime Minister, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in November of 1995. Eventually, after a series of transitions in the Prime Ministership, Ehud Barak is going to run for Prime Minister in 1998, 1999, and he's actually going to defeat Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu will obviously win many times after that, but Netanyahu loses at that point. And Ehud Barak makes the country three promises in the shadow of the Rabin assassination. He says, I'm going to make peace with the Palestinians. I'm going to make peace with the Syrians, because don't forget Israel now has peace with Egypt and Jordan. And I'm going to get the boys out of Lebanon, meaning Israel had gone into Lebanon in the first Lebanon war in 1982. It's almost 20, it's almost 18 years later, 16, 18 years later. And Barak says, enough of that war also, we're going to get them out. His attempts to negotiate with Damascus, Syria, go nowhere very fast. We don't have time right now to go into what exactly they break up over, but it's very clear to him that he's actually not going to be able to make a peace deal with, with Syria. So he puts that aside. And he does actually pull the army out of southern Lebanon in 2000, in about May of 2000. The boys come home, as they say. And Israelis watch this with rapt attention. And they understood that the kids who were coming out of Lebanon, i.e. the soldiers who were coming out of Lebanon, were basically being born when Israel first went in. And there were all these unbelievably famous videos of Israeli kids, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, on the back of these trucks loaded with soldiers on their cell phones, saying, Ima ani babayit, Mom, I'm finally home, as they crossed the border and came in. And there was a tremendous sense of relief that that war was finally over. There was also a tremendous amount of critique that Barak, who had once been the chief of staff of the Israeli army, pulled Israel out so quickly, leaving behind material and all kinds of other stuff and leaving southern Lebanon unprotected. But that is a separate issue which we can't go into too much right now. And then the next issue really becomes, can I negotiate, says Barak, a deal with the Palestinians? Can I pick up with Arafat where Rabin left off? And by now, Bill Clinton is the president of the United States. Israelis trust Clinton. They understand that he cares deeply about the Jewish state. He had come to Rabin's funeral and had actually become, choke, had come, become choked up at the funeral when he said that very famous phrase, Shalom, Chaver, goodbye, my friend. Uh, it was really very clear to Israelis that Clinton loved Israel. It wasn't that he was going to do what Israel wanted, but here was a fair broker, many Israelis felt, and here was Barak, who was a prime minister from the left, 
but also a security man, so they felt that they could trust him. And Clinton, as had happened before, invited the Israelis and the Palestinians to go to Camp David, and they go to Camp David in the summer of 2000. Now, the exact content of what happened in Camp David is, first of all, very complex, so again, we can't go into it, and some of it's not actually known to the public. But people like Dennis Ross, who are accomplished American diplomats, say that Ehud Barak made Yasser Arafat a very serious offer of land and statehood in exchange for the end of the conflict. Now, obviously, the map was not going to be the map that Yasser Arafat wanted. That's not how negotiations work. One side puts out an offer, the other side counters, the first side counters. That's how negotiations work. So it's not surprising that whatever map Barak offered Arafat, and we don't really know for sure what map, I mean, most of us don't know for sure what map that was. It's not surprising that it wasn't exactly the map that Arafat wanted. But Arafat essentially leaves Camp David. The negotiations fall apart after a number of very intensive days with Israelis watching TV every night to see, is it happening, is it happening, is it happening? Arafat comes back having stormed out, and Barak comes back to Israel a very wounded political animal because he has put a lot on the table. He's made it clear we're willing to give up this and that and the other thing. And once you've offered it once, it's very hard to say in the future, no, 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 that we're not offering again. So he's put a lot on the table that Israelis think he's basically given up already, and he's got nothing to show for it. That's in the middle of the summer of 2000. And by the fall, the September more or less of 2000, begins the second intifada. The second intifada will last a little bit more than four years. It'll last until January 2005. And this time, this popular uprising is not really a popular uprising. It is very closely coordinated by Yasser Arafat, who directs a lot of what happens. And this time, it's not directed mostly at IDF soldiers. It's not directed at the security forces. It is intended to kill Israeli civilians, and that it does. More than a thousand Israeli civilians are killed during that period, mostly by suicide bombers. And there are many of the famous ones, the Sabaro pizza bombing and the Maxim restaurant bombing and the Dolphinarium bombing. I mean, to Israelis, all of those words are like Alamo and Gettysburg and, you know, they're just images of horror that Israelis really resonate to, that some people abroad still resonate to and not a lot of people necessarily do anymore because it's already almost 20 years since the beginning of all of that. There are a thousand Israeli casualties. Uh, there are also a lot of Palestinian casualties because Israel fights back and it pursues the underground terrorist units and so forth. And 30-something hundred Palestinians are killed, 3,100, 3,300, depending on who you ask. The vast majority of them are terrorists, but of course it's important to acknowledge that there are also some civilians who were killed, a small percentage, but there were of course civilians who were killed and thousands were detained. And it's during this period that Israel built the now infamous security wall. It's a barrier and a wall and a cement, huge thing in certain places and in other places, it's really a fence. Uh, but Israelis noticed that the more this wall went up, the less there were attacks. And the wall was never completely finished, but the combination of Israel's undercover finding and uprooting these Palestinian terror organizations its combat units actually taking them out and building this huge wall along its border with the West Bank, eventually puts the Second Intifada to rest in January 2005. Now, obviously, 
this is an extremely complicated, painful part of Israeli history, which we're telescoping into a very, very small number of minutes. But that's basically how it unfolds. What is the major casualty of the Second Intifada? There are a thousand Israeli casualties. There's thousands of Palestinian casualties. But in a way, as horrible as it is to say, those are not the most important casualties. The real casualty of the Second Intifada is the Israeli political left. Because for decades, ever since 1967 to be sure, the Israeli political left had said, we have to give up the land and we're gonna get peace. People could argue about how much land to give up, people could argue who to give it up to, but the left was built on the premise of land for peace. And in the summer of 2000, Ehud Barak offered land for peace. There was no question about that. Bill Clinton acknowledged that. Dennis Ross acknowledged that. Objective observers said Barak put a very generous offer, maybe not generous enough, but he put a very generous offer on the table, and what Israel got was four years of an intifada. And then the left had nothing to say. And all the right had to say was, we told you. We told you Madrid was a bad idea. We told you Oslo was a bad idea. We told you that all of these things were a bad idea, and you didn't listen to us. And how many more dead people are there going to have to be on both sides of this before you understand that you can't make peace with Yasser Arafat? You can't make peace with the Palestinian Authority. The Arabs have not yet agreed to our being here. It's, try, it's time to stop deluding ourselves. And to that, the Israeli left really had nothing to say. And the Israeli left to this very day really has nothing to say in response to that. And that's why there's really no Israeli left left anymore. And if we were to have elections right now, in the summer of 2020, polls show that it's very possible that the Labour Party, Israel's founding party, David Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, Moshe Dayan, Yitzhak Rabin, all those people, the party that ruled Israel with an iron fist for 29 years until Menachem Begin won in 77, the Labour Party might not actually make it into the Knesset at all. Israel has a right, Israel has a bit of a center. In terms of political power, Israel doesn't even have a left anymore. And the, Israel, the reason Israel doesn't have a left is because the left was killed in the Intifada. And people like to say in the world, Israel's moving rightwards. Well, there was a way in which that's actually true. Uh, Israel's right-wing parties are, do get a much bigger percentage of the, poll, of the electorate than they used to. But the question is why? One of the reasons is, as we said, the left was killed. Uh, and the other reason, of course, is that young Israeli voters came of age during that intifada. If they were four, five, six, eight, they went to bed hearing sirens. They woke up in the morning watching their parents weeping over the morning news. They watched over four long years how kids in elementary schools were trained what to do if there's a terrorist attack. They grew up terrified of and often hating the people who would do that to them. And now they vote. And it's really not all that surprising that they vote the way that they do. Yasser Arafat dies in 2004 in France. He is succeeded by Mahmoud Abbas, who takes over the leadership of the Palestinian Authority. Abbas is still the head of the Palestinian Authority today. 
He was elected in 2005 for a four-year term, so we should have had a run for re-election in 2009. He's never called an election since 2005, so he is essentially in the 15th year of a four-year term. And I say that not to be funny, but to point out that Israelis say also, by the way, the hope for democracy? I mean, who are we kidding? The Zionist Congresses in 1897 and 1898 were democratic. The Yeshuv was democratic. Israel has been democratic since 1948. They've had an opportunity to build a real democratic apparatus ever since 1993, and it's never happening. When are we going to stop deluding ourselves, say the right? They are going to be ruled by whatever strong man can get power. And what if we make a deal with a certain strong man, but then that strong man is forced out and a different strong man comes in? Where are we then? We've given up the land, but what if we don't have the peace? So it's not at all unimportant that Mahmoud Abbas has never again called an election after 2005. It's also not unimportant that he has a PhD from a Russian university, uh, and the title of his dissertation was The Other Side, The Secret Relationship Between Nazism and Zionism, in which he called the myth of the six million murdered Jews a fantastic lie. So you have at the helm of the Palestinian Authority a man who got whatever sort of PhD he got by writing a dissertation about how the six million is a lie. He still talks to this very day about how there was no second temple. There was no first temple. He says, that's all made up. The archeological evidence isn't real. Now, why would somebody with a PhD say something that's so obviously false? Because he has a very important message to his followers. If the Jews didn't have the first and second temple, then what Zionists were doing was not coming home. It was colonialist in some ways. It was capturing territory that wasn't theirs. And what Abbas is saying is, look, the Crusaders came and went. The Ottomans came and went. The British came and went. The Jews are here now, but they're going to go too. That's the signal that he's giving when he says there was no first temple, there's no second temple. Eud Olmert will eventually become prime minister in Israel, and in 2008, he will make another offer to Abbas, a peace offer, and he gives him a map, and he makes an offer, and Abbas does not even bother responding to the offer. Abbas admits years later that he just never bothered responding to the offer for reasons that one can only imagine. The major obvious reason is Anwar Sadat. Anytime a Palestinian leader thinks about making peace with Israel, they remember what happened to Anwar Sadat, who by making peace with Israel when he was the head of Egypt, became the most reviled Arab leader in the world and was assassinated by his own people. Mahmoud Abbas tragically understands that were he ever to make a deal with Israel, he would be killed by the right-wing fanatic flanks inside the Palestinian world. And that is just a tragic, heartbreaking reality uh, which Israel is up against. Ariel Sharon, we'll go back a second, uh, in 2005 will pull out of Gaza unilaterally. This is an indication of a different approach, not we're going to pull out of land when we can make an agreement uh, with the Palestinians. But Sharon said this is just ridiculous. We can't defend all of those Israeli citizens who are still living in the Gaza Strip. We're going to pull out and we're going to leave it to them to live their own lives. Uh, but then, of course, Hamas gets elected. And Hamas begins to build a huge arsenal of rockets, which it then fires at Israel. So the Palestinians in Gaza, who could have built a democratic regime or could have appointed a regime that would have negotiated with Israel, instead essentially elected Hamas, 
which has been at war with Israel ever since. And if one wants to ask, well, if Israel pulled out of Gaza, why does it still have a blockade of Gaza? For a very simple reason, because they fire hundreds and sometimes thousands of rockets at Israel, and they use the cement that goes into Gaza to build hospitals and schools. They use that cement for digging tunnels inside Israel. And Israel understands, again, tragically, that if the blockade on Gaza were to be lifted, they would bring in more sophisticated weaponry. They would bring in more sophisticated explosives. They would do all sorts of things that now they can't do that would endanger Israelis. But where does that bring us? It actually brings us back to 1923. It brings us right back to what Jabotinsky said a long time before there was even a Jewish state. And Jabotinsky said is what you need is an iron wall. You need a wall that is so hard and so unmovable that eventually, he says, when they understand that there's no getting rid of us, then he said there'll be a moderate leadership that will come to the head and that moderate leadership will accept our being here and they'll negotiate something with us. Right now in 2020, who runs the two various Palestinian entities? In Gaza, it's Hamas. And in the West Bank, it's Abbas, who denies the Holocaust, who says that the Jews were never here before, and who's been unwilling to acknowledge or respond to any of the peace deals that have been offered to him, one more of which we'll come back to in a little while. What would happen if that moderate Palestinian leadership arose? Are there still enough Israelis willing to make a deal for that kind of a treaty to pass on the Israeli side? I personally think that there are. What worries me is that we're never going to get the chance to find out. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.